most kids resent a dad who's constantly pushing them. Let's go. But not Rick Hoyt. We can do this. For years, Rick has been pushed, pulled, and carried by his dad, and he loves it. Here they come! That's because Rick, a wheelchair quadriplegic since birth, and his father, Dick, together have competed in over 65 marathons. So when you see Dick Hoyt pushing his son around, you're witnessing extraordinary devotion. Pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Atlanta's number one radio stations, Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6. Radio stations has you covered. From our studios to our newsroom at KLP Entertainment. Listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube and more. A few words for a successful life. Always ask why. Why? Tell the truth. All the time. Why? Write thank you notes. Eat right, sleep right. And exercise. If you don't like your job, change it. Why? Be creative every day. Take a fun trip. You don't always have to do things fast. These motivating thoughts from Randy Pausch's last lecture remind each of us to live our dreams. And I go now, my dog wants to play. Oh yeah, play with your dog. And with your kids. Motivation. Pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Live from our newsrooms brings back our hit news network, SNN, with many news anchors like Arthur Brooks, Addison Hayden, and Beatrix Gemma. Brings you stories about the news worldwide. Tune in on Atlanta's number one stations, Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6 radio stations. To get the latest news today, listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our channel of KLP Entertainment. Reporting live from our newsroom, this is SNN. I'm Beatrix Gemma. Here's your business news breaking for May 30th. Succession nailed the unreal way we live now. Like most of the great cable dramas, and to me, like so much of contemporary life, Succession was simultaneously tragic and comic, entertaining, and horrifying. Over its four seasons, which had a grand 90-minute finale on Sunday night, it was the apotheosis of a line of dark, galvanizing, breathtakingly excellent cable dramas about a criminal-adjacent milieu, shows that also have important, big things to say about our greed-addled American reality, The Sopranos, The Wire, and Breaking Bad. But Succession did something that none of its predecessors did. On the surface, the show blurred fiction and reality in a way that was juicy and fun. But its X-Factor, the reason it resonated so profoundly, was that the blurring of fiction and reality in the world the characters inhabit was a devastating commentary on the blurring of fiction and reality in the world we viewers inhabit. No other show has so skillfully used its real-time proximity to certain people and events, and did so just as life suddenly came to seem so uncertain and unreal. For 41 riveting hours over five very strange, disorienting years, Succession led an audience, around 8 million of us this final season, into its uniquely uncanny valley. 
Its unlikable main characters, a super-rich puppet master and his cynical, entitled children who together run a huge media corporation, are brilliant exemplars of a cast everyone nowadays really loves to hate. A critical mass of Americans has come to understand that big business and the rich hijacked and corrupted our political economy over the past several decades. The show resonated, too, because during the same period, the commingling of American TV news, and thus politics, and show business has accelerated and played a crucial role in the national unraveling. It was in the 1980s and 90s, too, as a new consensus arose in Washington that the New Deal was obsolete and in New York that broadcast news was all about ratings, that the word, zeitgeist, became a cliché, because writers like me started overusing it. Succession has perfectly captured the current zeitgeist, with all its confusions and contradictions. This anxious moment of extreme popular anger at elites and rigged systems and 1920s-level inequality is also, of course, part of the long-running Second Gilded Age. At least 53 million ordinary folks watched Vogue's video of the rich and famous arriving at the Met Gala on May Day. The series's huge HBO budgets afforded it the verisimilitude of endless private planes and extravagant locations filled with hundreds of extras. Fiction based on well-known living people and real events, the Roman Uclef, has been popular since the 1600s and especially during the past hundred years, from Tender is the Night to The Devil Wears Prada and, in between, the movie Citizen Kane, based on an heir who built a powerful conglomerate of newspapers, magazines, and studios, William Randolph Hearst. Succession is now the Kane of its genre and medium, our great Seria Uclef. The obvious models for Logan Roy, his Waystar Royco conglomerate and its American television network were our present-day Hearst Redux, Rupert Murdoch, his News Corp and Fox Corporation and Fox News. The past decade has been defined by how life, the real thing, so often resembles fiction, the first black president succeeded by a reality TV star and serial conjurer of failed businesses, the pandemic, the astounding and scary new artificial intelligence marvels monthly. You can't make it up, people say. But for those of us who turned to humor to help process the non-stop parade of weirdness, a new cultural trope was addictive, imagining that it is, indeed, all made up, that any improbable piece of news is a plot twist in a TV series or movie or digital simulation. The writer's room ran out of ideas, Donald Trump choppering from his COVID hospitalization back to the White House for a Mussolini balcony moment. This new show is so meta, the Ukrainian comedian who played an everyman who became president and actually became president, and so implausible, who stopped a superpower tyrant's blitzkrieg. That season finale really jumped the shark, January. 6, and then last year's hearings of the January. 6 committee, astonishingly effective because a former ABC News president shrewdly produced them, unlike any before, as a 10-episode multimedia TV series. In America at large, however, the blurring of reality and fantasy isn't merely fascinating. Americans' knack and weakness for these mixtures amount to a founding national predisposition, what made America the global center of show business, from P.T. Barnum to Hollywood to televangelism to reality TV. Our wise forebears also built walls between important reality over here and entertainment and make-believe over there and installed useful establishment gatekeepers to decide what belonged where. 
During the past half-century, those barriers crumbled gradually, then suddenly. America's iffy grip on reality turned from a chronic condition to acute and pathological, metastasizing beyond entertainment and spreading throughout the real world, most disastrously into our information and political systems, a phenomenon for which no single individual and enterprise has been more responsible than the real-life inspirations for Logan Roy and ATN. Early this season, Logan told his children, I love you, but you are not serious people. He could have been talking to America, where people now feel entitled to their own facts as well as their own opinions. The writers and producers of Succession adhered to rigorous verisimilitude in depicting the corporate scheming, the lust for power for its own sake, the look and feel of life inside the bubble of the very rich, an unhappy family unhappy in its own way, even the self-consciously jargony talk and strenuous insults. Its understanding of the politics of oak capitalists was also spot on. Most are not right-wing true believers like the billionaires Charles Koch and Peter Till but more like Logan or Rupert Murdoch, sure, they are on the right, mainly for personal greed is good financial reasons. But to Mr. Murdoch and Logan, creating streams of alarming and misleading news-like propaganda about issues they care little about was a counter-programming business opportunity. At a reception, when the far-right-wing presidential nominee, Jerried Menken, says to Chivroy that he and her father were in ideological sympathy, she smiles and says, nah, he was about money, winning and gossip. In an early episode, Logan's grandnephew Greg says that he had qualms about going to work for ATN because it's, like, kind of against my principles. Logan's executive flunky son-in-law, Tom, doesn't buy it for a second. Your principles, he says. You don't have principles. None of the main characters do. Writing realist fiction about real individuals and events carries two opposing risks, going over the top, which Succession never did, and being too on the nose. The goal is to get exquisitely close to but never quite touch the hard reality, the way maglev technology lets high-speed trains miraculously float an inch or two above the tracks. The show's creator and showrunner, Jesse Armstrong, made several large choices that radically diverge from reality. Our pandemic did not happen in the characters' world. They almost never mention real public figures or companies. Dates aren't mentioned at all. A show about contemporary news media and politics avoided dealing directly with race and racism or wokeness or other cultural warfare. The major party presidential nominees are played by actors who are 54 and 42, highly unrealistic these days but fine by me. And strangest of all, the words Republican and Democrat were almost never uttered, the better, perhaps, to indict the cynicism and corruption of the whole system. The Roy family does and doesn't resemble its inspiration. Yes, Logan was an old, tough, legendary, Anglophone immigrant who built a media empire, including a TV channel supplying right-wing commentary and news 24-7. But he is very much his own freestanding creation. Murdoch didn't decide to sell his entertainment holdings to a Netflixy startup owned by a local-like Swede, for instance, and most important, he didn't build his business from scratch, he inherited it from his knighted father in the 1950s. He has, however, like Logan, had several wives, also like Logan, one of those marriages produced two sons and a daughter who have competed to succeed their father. 
Like Kendall Roy, James Murdoch went to a fancy New York prep school and Harvard, and worked on the Lampoon, and is a rap aficionado. But unlike Kendall, James Murdoch can be funny, and as Maureen Dowd wrote in 2020, people who know both Murdoch's sons refer to James as the smart brother and the more interesting one, suggesting Roman resembles him at least a bit. In her anti-ATN liberalism, Shiv is the most like James Murdoch but obviously also like Elizabeth Murdoch, who was married to a media world schemer, was shoved aside early in the succession race and, according to Times reporting in 2019, which she denied, had urged her father to fire James and replace him with her. The show's dance between fiction and reality continued throughout the seven years of its creation and presentation. The cast sat down together for the first time to read the script for the first episode the same day our reality would spectacularly, disorientingly outrun fiction, November. 8, 2016. When Murdoch divorced his fourth wife, Jerry Hall, the settlement reportedly prohibited her from providing story ideas to the show's writers, a fact that itself could have provided a story idea for the show's writers. After season two ends with Kendall righteously turning against his father and then with the series on a pandemic-enforced hiatus, real life went totally, succession, in eight months, James Murdoch resigned, Mr. Trump attempted his illegal overturning of the election, and the big voting machine companies brought lawsuits accusing Fox News of knowingly, repeatedly lying about them. James Murdoch told Ms. Doubt he quit the family company because of Fox News's blurring of fiction and reality. You can venerate a contest of ideas, he said. But it shouldn't be in a way that hides agendas. A contest of ideas shouldn't be used to legitimize disinformation. He added, I think at great news organizations, the mission really should be to introduce fact to disperse doubt, not to sow doubt, to obscure fact. In 39 episodes of Succession, no Roy family member or any other character I can recall ever said anything remotely similar about the nature of truth and journalism and the marketplace of ideas, let alone with such apparent sincerity. Your principles? You don't have principles. The writers, with their masterly fiction reality maglev trick, only once let the speeding, succession, train come too close and screechingly scrape the track of important hard fact, in the election night episode two weeks ago set almost entirely at ATN headquarters. From the start of the series, the producers made the counterintuitive, and, to my mind, correct, creative choice never to show the ATN sausage being made or served. A realistic dramatic series about making TV is almost impossible to do well and, when it depicts characters covering and commenting on recent actual events, HBO's The Newsroom, easy to do terribly. The succession election night mixes are past two actual ones, 2016, when a fascism-friendly Republican candidate won a surprise victory, and 2020, when Fox News went out on a limb before midnight to say accurately he'd lost Arizona, kicking off days of close swing state uncertainty before he was finally declared the loser. On the succession, the Roy children are in and around the newsroom on election night, managing details of coverage in real time. As far as we know, no Murdoch ever did anything like that. They go way out on a limb to declare the fictional fascism-friendly Republican candidate the winner in still-undecided Wisconsin and therefore the president-elect, 
and they do it in exchange for his agreement to assist in a business scheme, resulting in an unequivocally corrupt, undemocratic election, coincidentally, what the real-life fascism-friendly ex-president claims happened to him in real-life 2020. For people horrified by Mr. Trump's surprise victory in 2016, then nerve-wracked by the long wait for a final result in 2020 and now uneasily imagining a Trump re-election in 2024, the fictional worst-case hybrid of succession was re-traumatizing and dread-inducing. I found it problematic for a different reason. We've now seen proof that Fox knew the stolen election conspiracy theories it pushed after election night 2020 were false and that it pushed them to pander to what its audience wanted to hear. At our precarious moment in the real life and potential death of the Republic, for succession, to tease its audience's suspicions and fears with such a hyperrealistic alternate facts version of a recent election bordered on the irresponsible. ATN's corrupt presidential election night call may not have worked after all, with the Wisconsin vote still up in the air and the Roy's bad guy no longer seeming a lock for the Oval Office. But that's barely, passingly mentioned. Democracy the nation's future? Incidental to the real business at hand. For a while, the last episode let us believe that the Roy kids had grown a little, were capable of something like ordinary sibling fun, playing in the ocean, goofing around late at night in their mother's kitchen. In the hard light of the business day, however, they were out only for themselves. Roman ran away, Shiv pulled maneuvers worthy of her name, and Kendall showed that the truest, Hardest fact of your life can be transmuted into fiction if the princeling wishes it. In a succession, there were no redemptive character arcs. It was beautifully ugly from beginning to end. As it finished, the show managed to separate itself from the real-life particulars that had inspired and energized it. Its fictional world was all its own. But it spoke to ours powerfully. In time the chatter about the Roy children, and Tom, will die down, along with the debates about the allure or loathsomeness of their tastefully lavish lives. What should linger are its truths about the corrupting effects of untethered power, the unfathomable cynicism of people in high places, the failure of billions to buy happiness and, most of all, today's mesmerizing, confusing, terrifying interplay of fact and fantasy. In 2019, Alexis Ohanian, the co-founder and former executive chairman of Reddit, was watching the Women's World Cup with his wife, Serena Williams. When he made a comment about their daughter playing for the team, Serena said, not until they pay her what she's worth. From that moment, Alexis made it his mission to close the pay gap in women's sports. He started by investing in Los Angeles's NWSL team, Angel City. We spoke with him and Giant Spoon marketing executive Laura Carenti about the true business value of women's sports. If you look at the numbers in the business of women's sports in this moment in time, you see the NCAA, you know, national championship women's basketball, you know, 9.9 .9 million viewers peaking at 12.6. You know, it's not that we're having a moment, like it is the moment. And when you look at those types of numbers in terms of fan engagement, fan consumption, fan attention, and then you look at the commercial side, these things aren't adding up, right? You've got 1% of total sponsorship dollars going to women's sports. You've got less than 5% of media coverage allocated to women's sports. 
we need to close this gap. What do you think is the biggest problem that can be solved right now? I mean, it's the curse of low expectations. It's striking, especially in the context of a precedent that we already have in plain view. We're here in New York City, home of, I think, the most important tennis tournament on the tour, the U.S. Open, a sport that when the U.S. Open shows up, Americans tune in disproportionately to watch the women. Now you start looking across the board. The reason in 2019 I started tweeting about women's soccer being so undervalued was because I realized if you asked me, think of American soccer greatness, I couldn't think of a man because there hasn't been. But I can think of a lot of women. Chastain with that penalty kick taken off her shirt, screaming, everyone being thrilled. Mia Hamm in OG. And in this newer generation, in 2019, when I was mouthing off, a team sold for three or four million dollars. That same team had Megan Rapino on it. Megan Rapino is worth at least that much in revenue a year on her marketing prowess alone. So you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to say, okay, someone is doing a terrible job running the businesses of these clubs when you have individual players who, in spite of all of those low expectations in marketing and promotion, etc., still rise beyond. NIL has been such a tremendous win and will continue to be because you have women who are making millions of dollars a year in these brand deals in college who are now going to create this very uncomfortable situation because the free market has dictated that their influence is worth millions of dollars a year to brands, not because it feels good, because it makes them money. And so when they become pros, you got to look around and say, well, what the hell are these clubs doing? What the hell are these organizations doing to not also put the same kind of dollars into salaries and into investment? When we look back on the legacy of underinvestment in women's sports over the last, call it, let's just say 50 years, it will not just be a legacy of sexism and racism, which it is. It'll be a legacy of gross business incompetence. You know, you talk about the NCAA, you talk about tennis. Olympics. These are events that have huge women stars. People tune in to the women more than the men or equal. But these are events that happen at the same time. Do you think there's any reasoning behind that? I don't think it's necessarily an issue of seasons or sports overlapping. I think one of the most consistent, I should say, themes Alexis and I have heard in this journey and meeting with a lot of people um, in the business uh, and sports communities is more is more. More visibility, more prime time, um, not having to go through paywall and paywall and paywall to access games. That's only going to help the sports grow. And so I think the metrics for success have to be reevaluated and look at it for what it is today, knowing that with the visibility, the coverage, the amplification, we will get to a place where the comparison is then at, at parity. Those stories are already there and just have needed that spotlight. And that's why this momentum is going to keep building. And that's why I saved the tweets of every single person who told me I was going to lose all my money by starting a women's soccer club. You're going to see this momentum continue. And I, I feel so lucky to just have gotten a surfboard at the right time to get on this wave because of all the things I've been early and right into, this is the one that feels so much bigger. It feels like a seismic shift of support. Angel City was bought for two, $5 million. Our expansion fee, I can't even tell you how low the expansion fee was, but it was lower than that. But now the, the Bay Area has just signed their team for $53 million, them tenfold of what Angel City pretty much paid, right? More. Does that make you, is that like a sigh of relief when you're like, no, I was right. I think for a lot of people, 
who, who were here way before me, it's more of a, it's an about damn time. And, and I, that, that is not lost on me, right? I know I am a, a guest in this world, but I'm one who, who wants to just keep playing the role that I need to play, right? And so no one feels in any way, um, relieved. Everyone feels like, yeah, it's about damn time. Angel City is on this wave of one to be the first billion dollar women's franchise. How do you get there? You build a rabid, dogged fan base all over the world. You continue to raise the bar on brand partnerships. You continue to demonstrate the value. Women's sports fans are such amazing supporters because they'll buy into the brands that are partnered with the clubs, right? I mean, there's real value there. I think women's sports is at this moment where the idea of being a sports and entertainment brand is where I think the future of women's sports is moving. And once you get to that unlock, the storytelling, the game day experience, the community involvement, looking at everything from merch collabs to social media assets. When you start building out that ecosystem, you're no longer just talking about an on-field product, but really the off-field product being comparable. I think you're in a whole different ballgame evaluation. Alexis, Laura, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. There's so much more we could talk about, but thanks for having us. Thank you. Bondo popoli jette suvastaran India is one of the most climate vulnerable nations in the world. It's also one of the world's biggest producers and users of coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, and the single largest contributor to climate change. We are at the Gevra coal mines, one of the largest coal mines in the world, in the Indian state of Chhattisgarh. We are seeing vehicles move around us, carrying this coal to different power plants to meet the rising electricity demand caused by the rising heat. And this coal is being taken out by workers who are braving this 40 degrees centigrade plus heat to make sure that the power plants do not run out of this precious fuel. Among them is 37-year-old Ravi Bera, who has been working here since 2011. physical health a changing climate has made extreme heat 30 times more likely in India. People who work outside, like Rabi, sometimes endure life-threatening temperatures. The World Bank estimates up to 75% of India's workforce is vulnerable to the effects of high heat and humidity. Today, 
और बिजली पूर्ति करने के लिए कोयला का भी वैसे ही रिक्वायरमेंट बढ़ता है और ज़्यादा कोयला भी खपत हो रहा है द हाई डिमांड ऑफ एन ओवर वेल्स द नेशन सप्लाई इंफ्रास्ट्रक्चर एंड रिजल्ट इन वाइड स्प्रेड ब्लैक आउट द लैक ऑफ एक्सेस टू सेफ ड्रिंकिंग वाटर स्पेशली इन रूरल एरियाज ऑल्सो इंक्रीजेज द रिस्क ऑफ डिहाइड्रेशन इन दिस विलेज सम पीपल वॉक मोर देन हाफ अ माइल राउंड ट्रिप टू गेट वाटर आमे से उत्तम रक्षा पाइबे आम जंगल प्राइम मिनिस्टर नरेंद्र मोदी गवर्नमेंट है हाँ सर पहले के कंपेरिजन में तो ये बढ़ते जा रही है और आगे भी बढ़ेगी इसलिए कि हम लोग माइन मतलब पेड़ पौधे इतने भी कट रहे हैं ऊपर से इतने माइंस हो गए इंडस्ट्रीज जो भी लग रहे हैं जिसके कारण से पोल्यूशन बढ़ रहा है और टेम्परेचर भी बढ़ रहा है तो ये तो धीरे धीरे और ही और बढ़ते जाएगा दो इंडिया हैज मेड क्लाइमेट फाइनेंस एंड ग्रीन डेवलपमेंट प्रायोरिटी इट्स नॉट गेटिंग कोल्ड यूज एनी टाइम सोल्ड 